Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. One of the reasons I wanted to reboot Movie Land as a podcast was because even though I am a film critic and even though I am a lecturer at a film school, I wanted more conversations in my life about the high end of film, about cinema. And one of the places I was getting those conversations when I had the previous iteration of Movie Land was with Jim Flanagan, a cineast like me. And now that I've rebooted Movie Land, I've gotten Jim back and we are going to talk about movies once again. Jim, besides being a cineast, is a restaurateur, a beer producer, a music producer and a music record label owner. Hi, Jim. How are you? DJ, good afternoon. I'm well. I'm done we can this finally, a while. I know. We can finally talk about movies again and I would just say that even though, you know, we've emerged from, well, the, the worst year, really, of our lives, I would hazard a guess, yep. what do you think it has been like for movies? It feels like we still got a, plenty of good movies. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, right? Like, everyone's release schedules for the year were, were, were done just because, you know, the world basically temporarily closed and, and ended. Didn't change anyone's, you know, release schedules. And you think about the, you know, the timeline of putting a film together. They're done, you know, usually at least six months before they 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 get distribution or, or anywhere. So there was this huge amount of cinema ready to go. It was just a question of adjusting the distribution um, and consumer models to get it out there. So, and, and personally, I, I actually thought it was a really, I was sort of looking through my kind of favorite publications and end of year list. I thought it was a really solid year. Yeah. How about you? I, I thought it was a great I, year. Yeah, I did. And in fact, it was it was very interesting because so many of the big commercial mainstream films got their releases delayed, kicked further down the field. It actually mm. helped shine a light on the kinds of films you and I like the most, you know, because they were sort of they, they got more room to breathe, room to be seen, I feel. Well, and they also were given a little bit more potentially of a level playing field than they would normally have. And you you made a comment when we were sort of discussing doing this last week that, you know, everyone curated their own little mini film festival last year. And I think that's true. And because all of the usual consumer and distribution models sort of disappeared for mo most of the year, a lot of small, well, all cinema were really only, were competing through the one sole um, distribution channel, which is which is streaming, effectively. That's a simplification, but that was largely true. And so I think it leveled the playing field in some ways in that everyone was locked in their houses making considerations about what they wanted to watch. And that could either be a $50,000 um, film made on a, on a um, someone's iPhone or one of the myriad um, you know, popcorn event films that they that were chosen to release through the same mechanism. So I think it actually had some quite interesting, an interesting leveling impact on on kind of international cinema. And I think that's reflected in a lot of the the you know people's picks of what they enjoyed the the most. And even some more straightforward publications, I think, were clearly watching a broader range of things than you know. I think your the the average Joe or Josephine would. 
Yeah. And indeed, some of the big ones, the big commercial films that they released didn't actually kind of have the impact that they expected. No. Things like Tenet and Wonder Woman 1984 weren't, you know, they weren't Titanic. Well, and I think there's a relationship between the two. I think people were less interested in those big event kind of cinema experiences and potentially, you know, I, I don't know how, how conscious this was, in, more interested in more interior drama and and cinema because of that and I, I yeah I don't we can talk about Tenet I didn't wasn't a, wasn't a huge fan and I found it a bit of an empty experience watching a film like that on your couch and not in a in a cinema with a smashing Dolby you know thumping sound system surrounding you as well so I think that informed people's viewing choices as well yeah well, um, we are getting around to an awards season now that is looking all the more fascinating because of what we've just talked about. And I just wanted to lead our conversation with a film that was on a list you sent me a few weeks ago and then had been removed from a revised list you sent me this afternoon. Because when you sent me your first list... It was one that I hadn't watched yet, so I watched right. it, and now it's gone from your list, but I think we should still talk about it because it is starting to win Best Actor prizes at the various critics' awards that are starting to be I handed out in the United States. Mm. Riz Ahmed has started yeah. picking up some awards for his role in Sound of Metal, and yeah. that was on your list, um, and then it was off your list. So clearly, it was around number eleven. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's a great film, and it could easily. I could kind of put it back on there. It was. It was a bit of a juggling, balancing act. If I'm. If I'm honest, yeah, I, I loved that film and and almost everything about it. And I have also watched with extreme interest that Riz Ahmed has started to position himself as a front runner for all the major um, gongs in there. And I think he should. Here's my hot take. Mm. Paul Racy, who is the second male lead in the film, who mm. plays the leader of the deaf addict community that Riz Ahmed's character goes to when he becomes deaf, I reckon he is going to start emerging in the supporting actor races. I think he's remarkable. Yeah, and he is, and he's also that kind of understated classic American character actor that award ceremonies just kind of like now, I think, if you um, if you think about, I've just forgotten his name. Um, uh, the J.K. Simmons. Yes, thank you. Touchdown. So many, so many other examples as well. There's a there's a certain archetype of kind of battered Amer- Ben Mendelsohn sort of you know had a late career, <laughs> yeah. career devoted entirely to 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 this award ceremonies. Really like actors like that in that in that um, tradition. I think so. Yeah, good tip. Yeah, and he kind of looks. He's got that face that looks like you've seen him in a million things, but you haven't really. But he's just got that. He's got that character actor face, and he's got and lovely he's, compassion. Oh, and he's just great as well. Actually, he's a he's a little bit of a scene stealer in that film. Everyone, everyone in that in that film is is really good. But yeah, he's distractingly good, and um, in not actually that many scenes. If you look at his screen time, it's not actually that 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 huge. You know, we sort of follow Riz Ahmed around. And his his partner, but yeah, he's he's great. And what was it in a nutshell that you loved so much about it? Look, I think um, it's it's a really flippant, pat, obvious thing to say about about cinema and and if you use the a word art. But I think a good a good film and a good piece of art is always one that sort of shows you a world you haven't seen before, and um, that 
was not a world I had ever seen before. And look, possibly I'm partisan because it is about um, uh, um, a person who plays in an avant-garde underground noise rock art rock band, uh, which is is my idea of a good time. Um, but I just loved the complexity and the sensitivity by which it creates this utterly terrifying world of someone's world changing on a dime, you know, and there's that fantastic scene early on where Riz Ahmed's and the sound design in this film is just so clever and complex and his sound just goes basically and he's sort of at a gig and he's outside in the in the in the street and all of a sudden 95 of his hear percent of his hearing just disappears and i think the film does such a good job in 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 just depicting his response to this new world that he finds himself in and trying to to navigate that and it doesn't romanticize deafness or disability um, in any way, in any kind of obvious politically correct way. It's just such a sensitive, um, thoughtful, very understated way of depicting what happens when your world entirely changes. And when your world changes in a way that makes all of your plans and all of your goals potentially disappear in a, in a, you know, in a heartbeat. And I think Reza Ahmed is just fantastic in this. And, you know, he learned how to, you know, he's one of, he's one of those sort of, those, those, those sort of classic, um, method performance where he learned how to drum and he learned how to sign in preparation for the for the role and I'm sure it would have been perfectly fine and adequate if he hadn't done those things um but it's a it's a really rewarding in obvious very subtle performance and film I think yeah I agree with you well that's a that is a lovely film and um as I say that that just fell off your list so you have got 10 in front of me now indeed Sorry um, about one that. Of, <laughs> what, one of the other ones on your list that I decided to watch that I hadn't seen mm-hmm. was Possessor. Ah, baby Cronenberg. Yeah, so this is Brandon mm. Cronenberg is his name? Yep. David Cronenberg's son. He is yeah. basically more than anyone I could think of. I mean, Sophia Coppola's films do not look like Francis Ford Coppola's films, and there are other examples, but Brandon Cronenberg is literally following in his father's footsteps, not only in terms of being a filmmaker, but in terms of style and substance and theme. Yeah, 100%. And did you have a problem with that when you – and have you – by the way, have you seen his other film? Have you seen Antiviral? No, I have not. Okay, very similar terrain and aesthetic and stylistic approach. Did you, because I really, really enjoyed this film for obvious reasons, I put it in my favourite films of the year list. Was that a problem for you? Because if I'm honest, it wasn't a problem for me and I don't really feel I have an adequate explanation for why that is. I feel like a part of me should say, hang on, are you actually in some ways replicating and reproducing the aesthetics and the, the, you know, the decision, the artistic decision-making of your father. I'm not entirely convinced he isn't doing that, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Did I you have, have no problem with it. I'm, I'm just, I'm just more fascinated by it. It's just really interesting that someone, I mean, I totally understand why actors, children become actors and why filmmakers' children become filmmakers because you've grown up around it, you know the business, you've met the people, but you've also observed your father or your mother at work. So you do learn things and you learn – sometimes you learn from the best. I get that. But the fact that he's doing – and the fact that his father had such a specific 
thing that he made and that Body this guy horror. Brandon is making the same type of thing is just, to me, it's just really interesting more than anything. I, I agree. It's much more interesting than, than a problem. And, you know, I think, you know, everyone, including you and I, are probably making these assumptions in quite using quite broad brushstrokes. Yes, you know, his films have a lot of body horror and a lot of very visceral, uh, meticulously well-designed uh, sequences and get into all kind of uncomfortable thematic, complex- thematic complexities like his father's films. But so does just lots of good cinema and literature, you know. So I, I sort of feel, you know, yes, you can say there's he's clearly there's a there's a you know there's an influence but i don't i i already think he's a really really interesting filmmaker and i'm fine with it <laughs> oh totally so possessor is essentially about i suppose a corporate assassin whose mode of assassination is that she that there's a scientific technique, a medical technique, where she is able to take over the body of someone else, almost by remote control, like kind of get in their head and make them do the assassination for her, for the company she works for. Yes. And um, which is, I mean, it's very Cronenbergian. But the, 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 the other thing that aligns him with his father, and I think happens in this film, is it runs this line of being very clear narrative, yeah. but also... So there's so many ideas in there that it's also a little bit confusing at an idea level. Do you know what I mean? It's just it never, overpacked in a way. It is, and especially the last reel or so where, without without any spoilers, where the two people, if you will, that are, are arguably, you know, inhabiting the same body start to merge and <laughs> conf- it's confusing and fascinating which character is in front of you between between the two. And I, I, I never, yes, it gets thematically and kind of narratively confusing, but never in a way that isn't completely compelling and just so interesting and full of ideas about, you know, how, how, how vulnerable we are to influencing other people and how disconnected we are and how, how we can hurt people mentally and, and physically. And there are, there are so many simple eloquent ideas frothing around I, I was ne- i never took issue you know it wasn't to slide another example like tenet where it was so preoccupied with its own innate cleverness that it kind of kind of stopped making any kind of coherent narrative sense and you just got bored i was just riveted with this all the way through to the end even when i wasn't entirely clear of what was actually going on in the best possible way yeah another element of it which I can't really sort of be overlooked is just how willing it is to be super, super, super violent. Oh, like yeah. I haven't watched nah. a movie that graphically violent in, in a few years, in a, in a while. No, it's, it's disturbing. And it sort of starts in that opening sequence with the opening assassination. It doesn't really, really stop. And I, but I think, I think CJ, that's one of the reasons that, because the, you know, as you kind of alluded to the, the general concept is possibly a little bit silly in how simple and high concept it is. There's this technology that means you can sort of take over people's minds and carry out assassinations pretending to be them. It doesn't really explain that concept in any compelling detail, but it's so visceral and the graphic is so real and intense and not how you normally see cinematic graph uh, violence depicted in any kind of kind of conventional thriller it's so confronting and real you, you sort of forget about the fact that you haven't had this concept 
um, explained to you in any kind of compelling yeah. way. And you just go with it because it just seems so real. And I think the way that Brendan Brandon Cronenberg sets up the scene and shoots and edits this film, it's so beautiful as well. It's so t- it's so graphic and horrifying, but it's full of such striking design and colors. And it's 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 a really and that's a very Cronenberg a combination as well you know you sort of it both terrifies and and sort of fills you with beauty at the same time you know, yeah and it, kind of Carvaggio-esque almost way and and his dad always used Canada in this way particularly I guess Toronto to sort of suggest the kind of any city yeah. and that's what's happening here I too understand. You know, it's not New York, it's not Paris, it's not London. By using Toronto, I think it's Toronto. Yeah. And the way he shoots it, it's just like modern, vaguely futuristic, modern, pretty big, not quite megalopolis, but a metropolis city. And I like that sort of generic sheen that both Cronenbergs are doing. It is just a – it could be any city, anywhere. These could be people – um, anywhere at yeah, almost well, not at any time because it's very you know technology focused. But yeah, no, I agree, and that's very very intentional. Yeah, he's really good with a camera. I've got to say, yeah, I'll be watching him from yeah. now on. I, I really like um, uh, Andrea um, Riseborough in this as well. She's really quite creepy. <laughs> Yep, yep. And, well, I remember we talked about all the Black Mirror episodes, and we loved yeah, her Black yeah. Mirror episodes. It's just kind of perfectly cast in this and it's it's a it's there is no one to root for in this film whatsoever and you <laughs> it's true cannot avert your eyes for a second and that's i think that's a really hard trick to pull off as a filmmaker there are very few filmmakers that can do that and not just repulse you you know because there's no one that you really give a shit here about at all there's a there's a kid and a and a, and a you know and a dad but yeah none of the characters and there's no attempt to either this is such cold clinical ideas based cinema and that's i think that's really that's hard yeah i i like that about it too you're you're right there's mm. no there's no hero there no. now if that is science fiction horror there is the complete other side of science fiction, which is kind of cuddly science fiction, Spielberg science fiction. Yeah. Both you and I watched and enjoyed The Vast of Night, the debut yeah, feature yeah. film from a guy named Andrew Patterson. Yeah, good segue. Jesus, that's a very, very wow, that is quite a different film to um to possess. So what did you what did you think about this? I I really this is my favorite genre film of the year. Sure, sure. How about you? Um, so the vast of night is a very independent, very low budget um, film about a couple of young people in a town. I want to say, well south in the United States, like close to the border uh, with Mexico, who um, uh, uncover the potential for aliens on their way to their town, like aliens in the sky, uh, in the skies. It all takes place on one particular night. There's a lot of use of radio. It's all very much about how these kids intersect with the radio. One of them is like the local DJ. And one of them, I think, is the telephone operator. It takes place in the 1950s. And its vibe is very much like Steven Spielberg, but on a budget and it's almost like this is it's kind of like imagining this is what Steven Spielberg must have been like when he was in his 20s except Andrew Patterson is actually I believe in his 40s 
But um, crazy it's, young. Yes. It's <laughs> Not it is, with that. Yep. It is very much saying to my mind, I want to this to be considered in the vein of a Steven Spielberg type experience. This is friendly, this is warm, this is fun, this is full of wonder. This is yeah. sci-fi to make you happy as opposed to something like Possessor. Ah, I would I would just I'd add to that crucially. This scared the shit out of me as well. Really? And yeah, and I do think it's it's absolutely in that kind of classic Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, um, uh, matinee, Saturday, Sunday afternoon sci-fi tradition. But it's also really, really creepy. And I think my, fa- my favourite sequences in this film, there are a series of, and I think they're the best sequences in the film, actually. It does great things visually with a, with you know no budget at all, but there are three or four just really brilliantly written and executed sequences where they are talking to people that have dialed into their radio station. But it's all set around there. They, they run a local town radio station and they stumble across a sound that they reproduce on the radio that they suspect is the sound of aliens. And they have several people dial in to share their experiences. And there are just two or three set pieces where this it's just a one static shot of them discussing with someone their experience and they're te- they're terrifying um i thought anyway as they as they relate and tell them over the radio live on the radio so it's all it's also it's it's all meta and it's great radio as well and they're really excited that they're capturing it live they share their experiences of when they think they uh, interacted with potentially this alien in you know previous at other stages of their life, um, and why they think they're right, and they have found that you know there are aliens in spaceships hovering about the town. So I, I do think it's absolutely of that line, but I think it's really it's a really old school, genuinely scary watch as well. Did you did you you didn't it didn't hit you that way? Well, no, but I know I know exactly what you're saying because those those bits are very well written and they are they are haunting. I mean, the the thing is set up as though it's an episode of a fake TV show yeah. that is very much modelled on the Twilight Zone, yep. and it's got that creepy thing. I mean, I was never scared by the Twilight Zone either, but I appreciated that it was giving me like the heebie-jeebies. Yep. Like it's it's like a fun way of being scared, I suppose. This scared me in a really, really fun, genuine, old school way. And it, yeah, and I mean, that's sort of the structure of a lot of the film, right? It's it's, it's mm. about a yeah, radio show, ring, it, ring in with your scary stories and see if you can scare us and by extension, you know, the, the, the audience. Um, the, the other thing it does is it counterpoints those long sequences where we're hearing these very well-written stories or these interesting, very well-written dialogue scenes between the two main characters with these incredible set pieces with a moving camera. Oh, man. Which are just astonishing. Especially that that opening 15-minute tracking shot it's i mean it's exhausting god knows how they how they how long it took to storyboard yeah really technically impressive long flowing single shot sequences involving dozens and dozens of characters as they go through this it's yeah it's very impressive it's 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 an impressive small film it is it's a film that actually sort of 
waves its hand and says, look, yeah. I'm being impressive, but it deserves it. Like, it works. It really is quite clever. And it's one of those, it's an obvious thing to say, it's one of those classic films where you sort of watch it and you thought, I really enjoyed that and I really, really can't wait to see what that filmmaker does next. You sort of you sort of feel like you're watching a really, really talented new filmmaker flex their muscles properly for the first time and potentially really, you know, impress the crap out of everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It says I can make a film. Like if you were an agent at a Hollywood agency representing directors and you saw that film, you would instantly try and get that. Look, and that and it had great reviews when it came out and I'm sure that is already uh, in, in flow. I think um, the director is probably, yeah. Doing. So staying with the kind of sci-fi adjacent vibe, mm. a film that I saw a long time ago now because I saw it at last year's Sydney Film Festival. So it was it's it's a bit dim in my memory, but I loved it. Was uh, Baccarat? Oh. Was that at Sydney Film Fest twenty? Must have been nineteen. Yes. Was it really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. It is officially considered a release of last year, so that would okay. Yeah, it was definitely a 2020 release, but I saw it at City Film Fest 2019, so it's been a while. But um, it's from Brazil, and it's essentially at its most basic level about – it's that classic sort of trope that's been done in a few other films of rich people paying to hunt – Poor people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and therefore talking about class and all sorts of other things, but it is particularly Brazilian in a way. And um, it is- I think there's a whole lot of political stuff going on within the film as well. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's clearly a reflection of the filmmaker's very, very strong feelings to the Bolsonaro government in Brazil. And the look, I'm going to make a terrible hash, I'm sure, of pronouncing his Portuguese name, but Kleber Mendoza Filho, the, the Brazilian director. Have you seen Aquarius, his previous film? I did. I didn't okay. like that one as much as this one. Me either. But you know, he's a very politically minded filmmaker. And when they were at Cannes with Aquarius, you know, they had those placards and they were, they were um, there was a political protest. Um so this is a very, very political film. What I loved about this film is is sort of what you said is this almighty genre mashup of of sort of invasion fantasy and kind of classic Western tropes with this really, really strong um, kind of undercurrent, almost sort of fantasy, um, revenge sort of fantasy against the very, you know, terrifying political realities in Brazil. And... To me, I watched this uh, a few months into the real, the real hard lockdown um, in, you know, certainly in Australia, and I, 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 I can't really think of a film that better captured 2020 to me than this. Just how intensely strange and unfamiliar the atmosphere is, and these sort of overt feelings of approaching apocalypse and violence. Um, and then, and then, kind of swaying back, at, at, you know, in the last sequence to something approaching, sort of some kind of hopefulness, sort of cutting through that. It just, I, I just thought about it constantly throughout the year after I, I, I thought it. And to me, this film sort of encapsulates twenty twenty. Yeah, I because I obviously saw it in two thousand and nineteen, and I think I would have had an even stronger reaction because the way you describe it, it makes sense. Like to be watching it in like lockdown of twenty twenty, it would really have an additional kick. I loved it. I remember yeah, loving it. I saw it at the State Theatre, you know, big audience, oh. big screen, the whole experience, and I absolutely loved it. And it was one of those films that was just working on two levels all the way through. You know, as you say, all the political stuff that's going on. It's it, it's incredibly well thought 
thought through. It's smart. It has something to say, but it's also relentlessly entertaining as a genre film. Banging. It's a banging Western action horror sci-fi as well. It's a and it's and it's it's really odd. It's a really really I ca- I can't remember the last time I I saw anything that even attempted to kind of smash together all of those genres and and it just it just works. I also think um Sonia Braga in particular who's possibly the only um um actress or actor in the film that anyone would know who was kind of a bit a bit of a darling in the west in the 80s. I think she was nominated for a Golden Globe for um, Kiss of the Spiderweb, and she plays the the alcoholic doctor. I just think she's yeah. awesome in yeah. this film. Well, the other person in it that people would know is Udo yeah. Kier. Yeah, of course. Sorry. Udo Kier, and he's just so good what in it. And I was like, hates. oh, I'm so glad he's still around. He hasn't changed. He still has the best eyes. <laughs> Doing that, he, du- he just has those death eyes. He's yeah. clearly had I mean how much fun would a role like that be to to like that. Well, and you can sort of tell how much the cast enjoyed this as well. There's so much flamboyance and personality even in the best possible way even the tiny roles have lots of personality and character in in this film. It's it is a film that is not short of personality. That's for sure. Now, Relic is on your list. Relic oh, didn't make my top 10. I did appreciate okay. it, but I'm not massive, massive, massive in love with it, but a lot of people are. It's appearing on a lot of people's lists. Yeah, I really loved Relic. Look, I I have a bit of a thing for a certain type of old school kind of classical horror tropes, and this this certainly ticks that box. But but that aside, um, I just think this is a really good example of you – know, it, it is it's, – it's basically a genre film, but, but mixed with this incredibly – moving very sad depiction of dementia and yeah. um, the film's much and much more the robin nevin um uh, central character um in the film it's 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 much more about that than any kind of classical haunted house type vibes and it's not particularly scary i know lots of people thought it was um i just think it's it, it's a it's a it's a bit of a special film in how it goes about to portraying that that issue, which is you know increasingly prevalent in our society, and we have an, an aging population, um, and that final sequence, which is sort of like Ingmar Bergman meets Clive Barker's Hellraiser. <laughs> That's right. So goddamn great. I won't you know I won't spoil it for anyone, but yeah, if this yeah. is this is the best dementia meets um, haunted house film you will ever see. I just think it is it is a very good film about dementia and about dealing with the aged. Yeah. You know, I think the the thing about it that's so brave is it's a film that acknowledges that for middle-aged people dealing with their old parents is scary. Yes. And it's terrifying. Yeah, and that we also find something and this is just me interpreting the film. This is not me stating this as my belief system, but we do find something unnerving, icky, repellent about old people's bodies. And that's part of what contributes to our fear. I think that's true. And also I think crucially that they can seem to us terrifying and that experiencing someone experiencing and going through dementia, 
we can be a little bit selfish sometimes and say, I find that terrifying. And that is okay to say that. And the film sort of depicts that response in this sort of fantastical way and I think deals with it in a very mature way. You know, that's that's it's okay to feel that. It's okay to find this really, really hard going. It is, it's hard, but ultimately they're our family and we love them and we, we look after them. Yeah, I um, I think that it worked for me better as a drama than as uh, a genre film. As a, yeah, it's beautifully designed, though. I really loved the I love the use of that single location, the house. Um, um, look, I think I would probably agree with you that it works better as a as a dementia drama than than a horror film. But I think it works really well as as both. So yeah, yeah I just contradicted myself. Now, a film that absolutely defies any sort of neat categorization because it is a documentary, but you could be absolutely forgiven for thinking you were watching a narrative fiction feature while you're watching it is Honeyland. Oh, man, what a film. And so this was the one film, CJ, I must admit, that I'd, I, I, I had mixed feelings about a lot of films in your list. I love some of them. I quite like some of them. I didn't like some of them at all. This was the one film that I think I hadn't seen that I saw and that I added. I chucked out um, Riz Ahmed for this. As- right. You chucked out Sound of Metal for this one? Chucked out Sound of Metal as much as I, I love that film for to make way for this film because I only saw it this week. And this is this really special piece of cinema, I think. Yeah, it, it's one of those films. It's about oh. a woman who is a beekeeper in Macedonia. She's an indigenous Macedonian woman living this pre-industrial life in the Balkan mountains. And she cares for her old mother, her ancient mother, and she produces a small amount of honey from a small amount of bees and sells this honey at a market that she has to walk four hours to to sell for a small amount of money. And it's just this incredibly, incredibly humble, modest, hard scrabble life. But it is consistent. It is sustainable until one day events happen and it is no longer sustainable. And just how this film came into being, how the filmmakers decided to well, and it follow was, this subject and then an get ac- the drama. It's incredible. It is. And apparently it was an accident. They were actually there in location in this part of rural Macedonia to make a film about climate change and something else. And then they met this character and then they apparently, you know, made the clearly very sage decision that, you know what, this is a much better story. It was, a, it was originally going to be a 20-minute short about <laughs> climate change. And then they met, who, you know, who is the central character of the film and, Oh man, talk about being in the right place at the right time. And it's and again, you know, like everything that we've been talking about, it's about so many things. It's this meticulous, beautiful, complex character study of this one person. And it's about climate change and it's about, you know, people it's this also this great big enormous ungainly metaphor about trying to get the balance right between, you know, market-based economies and the natural world and the dangers of, you know, messing with the with the latter and and um it's just such a rich, incredibly sad, um, very, very moving humanist film. And I, I don't know, I sort of feel like, I, I don't know if this was by design or not, but there are a lot of films like that released this year. The, you know, The Sound of Metal is another one. It seemed to be a great year for kind of classical humanist filmmaking, these stories about these these remarkable people going through terrible experiences. 
And the way this one is shot too, the way it is actually put together, like it is a documentary, but it it uses the language of fiction cinema. I mean, you know, you've got inserts and cutaways and reverse angles and reaction shots. I don't know whether they restaged events or how they did it, but the film looks like a construction. You know? <laughs> it, it looks formally composed. It does, and you can sort of work out pretty quickly that they clearly made some very strict aesthetic decisions about how they shoot it and there's seemingly no artificial lighting for any of the evening sequences whenever they're inside the house in the village and all those sequences with the, you know the, the the woman and her mother it's just they are lit by candle and and mm. it kind of they look like a veneer painting as a consequence i'm not sure what they did and i'm that'll need to be validated i'm not sure if they if they enhance that with other lighting but the way that they light this film is just magical and i can't remember the last time i saw this is a tiny film shot in the mountains of macedonia and it's the best shot best lit film that was in 2020 so go figure i know pretty amazing beautiful i'm gonna go one more that i've seen on your list and then you can tell me about some of the ones that you disagree with on mine how exciting okay uh les miserables this was this became a bit of a a bit controversial last year because France chose it over Portrait of a Lady on Fire mm-hmm. to enter as their official entry into the Oscars. Yeah, and it's kind of – already the cultural conversation has kind of declared that that was a mistake and that Portrait of a Lady on Fire was a better film. But I was looking forward to Les Miserables because I was like, well, what what's so great about this film – that says that France would make this choice. And it is a film about uh, cops in Bagneux outside of Paris um, on a very hot day with sort of tensions mounting and gradually things come to a head. And I thought it was very, 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 very authentic Mm -hmm. and well done because the – writer director comes from that area and he knows what he's talking about and all the, the clash of cultures and all the, the the whole ethnographic stuff was all smacked of integrity but but i thought um dramatically i guess i just felt i knew what was coming and then it came okay see i did i didn't know what was coming and i was i was actually surprised when what comes <laughs> Comes and I don't know what that what that says about my uh, my skills as as a viewer. But look, look yeah, and lots of it, lots of people that I know either loved or quite liked this film, and I think more saw it like you. Look, what I what I really loved about this film is that the way that and you know this is this is twenty twenty. Uh, I, I to me this film captured again a moment in time, and to me it. It reflected race relations and all of the complexities and very quick process of cultural evolution that we are facing into as a civilization, you know, uh, and everything that occurred in 2020. I didn't see that reflected in a in a film or a piece of culture anywhere near as well as this film did. And what I loved about it is how complex the myriad cultural complexities are in this film there's no there's no black and white in terms of the simplicity of the issues or the character there's only gray and it depicts all of the myriad very very 
difficult complexities of race relations in Paris and in France with multiple different generations of people that now live in France from multiple different parts of the world. And there's the good, the bad, and the everything in between in all of those disparate groups. And I just think the way that it pieced all of that together into a really coherent, quite non-didactive narrative was really, really, really impressive. And I agree, it's in no way a, a you know, a, um, a technically impressive film or, or even a particularly complex piece of storytelling, but the way that it depicts that world, I just thought it nailed that so well at a point in time in 2020 where the world is really staring into this in a, and in a way that we haven't for, you know, a, a, a long time. And I just thought it, 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 it was so zeitgeisty in the way that it did that. I do agree with you. I do agree with you. It certainly um, has all those sort of socio-economic elements that, yeah, just int- it just feels real. It, it has the. It does. It has the, yep. I'm interested that you saw the 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 climax coming because I really didn't. I thought we were settling down, and I thought it was. I was almost disappointed when it did come. I thought that was a little more obvious. I thought we had we had come up to boiling point and then stepped back from the abyss, and we're all going to go home, you know, reflecting on that, and then boom. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. Sorry. I've um I've watched, you know, all eight seasons of what I consider the best television show ever made, which is called Engrenage Spiral. Yes. This yeah, French police show. Spiral well. Spiral. And just every now and then they go into the banyu and yeah. things happen. So I guess it did feel a little bit like an episode of Spiral okay. to me. A really crackingly good Spiral episode. <laughs> yes, like that's a, fair. Like a, a stonkingly good double episode end of season finale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Released at the right time. So if you have been listening to Movie Land, you'll know that I've touched on my favourites of the year uh, over previous episodes of this this new reboot. Um, so now Jim can take some of those down. Jim, what are some of the some of the ones on my list that you disagree with? Okay, look, I look. I'm so excited <laughs> for this. <laughs> ah, bring it on. All right, let's let's start with let's start with the ugly. I. Personally, and again, I know many people that loved it. I really violently dislike True History of the Kelly Gang. I, I must confess, as a as a as a film, I I had quite a violent response to this film myself. Sure, <laughs> um, that's that's absolutely fair. It's it's hardly a it's hardly a film that you'd say everyone would like this. What was it about it? In the best possible way, and that's as it should be. Look to yeah. to me, I and I I like I read the Peter Carey novel a long time ago and uh, enjoyed it. To me, this, it's, it sort of played out like what a, a bunch of love privileged white hipsters would do if they were given a bit of money to shoot the Peter Carey um, novel of the true history of the Kelly gang. And I just found it kind of just so stuffed with, with sort of fashionable, uh, you know, 2020, um, sort of hipster artifice and and posturing, and I just I just found it really empty, really really quickly, and I do I really disliked um, uh, the lead performances. Um, it just didn't work for me at all. I've got to say this film, but I have many many close friends whose opinions I I absolutely respect and admire who loved it as much as you did so so you know let's um let's argue what did you love what did you love about this film um i liked 
just its exuberance, I guess. Okay. It was just so wildly swinging for the bleachers, you know. I guess I liked its punkish attitude. I liked its style. I just like Justin Cozell's thing that he's got going on. So do I. And um, I, I, I was engaged in a sort of really visceral way. I just, yeah. I was excited as I watched it. I thought Nicholas Holt was really good as that creepy Constable Fitzpatrick. He is. I thought, I thought George Mackay was good. I thought Essie yeah. Davis was good. I thought the acting was all good. Yeah. And I just liked it as a sort of deconstruction yeah. as a postmodern deconstruction, expressionistic, anachronistic piece of elliptical storytelling. What I liked about it is that he clearly attempted look, to me, bad cinema is when you is is an adaptation of a book that just seeks to just reproduce what the book does. You know? That's 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 just the, the, the definition. That's the hard definition to me of bad cinema. Where you take a book and you just slavishly reproduce it. That's this you know, like the atonement film or, or something like that. So yep. if you're going to film a book, you need to do something that the book doesn't do. Or if you need to if you're going to film a an album or a play, you need to add something to that text that isn't done in whatever you are, the source material is. So I I admire the fact that that was clearly his approach in this film. He really tries to do something new that is quite far removed from the source material. I just don't personally, I didn't like, I I didn't think he, well, actually, I, I don't think he succeeded in that personally. I don't, I don't see anything said in this film that, isn't said in the book other than the, the stylistic trappings of the film. But that is just me. Fair enough. I mean, that was my number 14. And of my top 15 of the year, uh-huh. that would easily be the hardest one of for me to recommend to other people because the only way I could serve it up to a lot of people would be like, you might like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't guarantee that you will like this. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay. What else of mine didn't you like? Look, I'm in a minority in that Mank didn't rock my world. I I, I enjoyed Mank. I there was a part of me that for its entire running time I found oh, I was a little checking my phone. <laughs> I don't think you're in a minority. I actually think that that is true. Actually, a lot of people were disappointed or mystified or just a little like (laughs) when Mank finally came out. Yeah. So look, so look, there's definitely that I found, I felt similarly with the Inucci history of of the the David Copperfield film. I quite liked Uh that as well. I I wouldn't put that anywhere near my, my top of list. Um, But look, in all honesty, your, your 10, I like a lot more than the, the first five before, and it, it, sure. yeah, I think you're like any good list. Your list gets better as you get closer to um <laughs> to, to number one. I also <sighs> Proxima. I really was underwhelmed with as a film. So that was that was the only one in your top ten that I was really really surprised was right up there. I quite enjoyed Proxima as a small film i was very surprised to see so you you might need to t- tell me what what it was that really hit you in the guts with this film that was my number 2 it was. it's totally it's totally um that is a left because it, choice because it I made love. me cry oh wow when? yeah it's uh, throughout the entire thing cry. the thing about proxima is okay. and um 
I don't mean to make this personal, but I, I, I sort of, I had to write in my review is like, I think, I don't think people who aren't parents will get it. Mm. I think it's, it only works potentially for people who are parents because it is basically about a, a woman who's an astronaut and she finally gets the gig that she's wanted her entire life, which is you can go spend a year on the International Space Station, but her little girl's turning eight. And suddenly she finds a conflict between going up and doing this year on an International Space Station or missing a single year of her eight-year-old's life. And I don't think until you've got a little girl who's close to eight and I've got a little girl who's close to eight, you can understand the conflict. Okay. And get the conflict. Because if you don't have a little girl who's close to eight, you're like, of course you're going to the space station. This is what you've been put on Earth to do. And I think, you know, so I don't want to say like, oh, I got it because I'm a parent and you didn't because you're not. But I, I think that maybe the film is only for parents in a way. Well, and look, personal, you know, personal experiences inform all of our decisions and choices in life. So that, make, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and look, the, the film is, is about the relationship between a woman and, and her daughter. It's, 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 you know, what she does is almost circumstantial. It just happens that she's a cosmonaut and she's going to the International Space Station for a year. But it's about a mother-daughter relationship. And it's a really lovely um, film about a mother-daughter relationship. I, I would just was just surprised at, that, to, you know, that you 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 um instilled in it that much gravitas, but I love that you did. Yeah, it was so moving to me. It was so moving to me. You know, the idea of a daughter saying to her mother while her mother's training to go to space mm. that mm. she hasn't made any friends at her new school that just devastates me. You know, <laughs> because. You know, her mother is training for weightlessness, mm. but what she can't do is get a child a friend at a new school, you know? Yeah. That's the amazing thing that's going on in that film. Everyone, everyone in this film is good, and it's, I haven't seen – I can't remember the last time I saw Eva Green in a, in, a, in a film, and she's great in this, actually. But that kid is amazing. That kid has yeah. the most fantastic cranky face I've ever seen in my life. And actually, the kid anchors the – um, the whole film, and yeah, foot, she'll foot, work. Foot, yeah, yes, she will. Footnote: This film has a really lovely, very, very subtle Ryuichi Sakamoto score. That um, one of my heroes, the great hmm. Japanese avant-garde um, pianist and and composer. Um, it's lovely, actually, and I listen to it a lot um, after after watching it. So there you go. Any more from my list you want to comment on yeah, one way or the other? Look, and most of the rest of it is a resounding yes. Um, the assistant, which is popping up on, you know, almost everyone's end of year lists, um, seemingly, which is interesting because it was quite a small film in some ways when it released, but it just had this meteoric impact, I think, with everyone who saw it. That to me is a really, really, I mean, you talk about a film for the times that we live in. That's, that is a classic, I think. The, the, yeah. The, the the execution and the writing and the subtlety with which that film deals with that issue is amazing. Yeah, that's, that's uh, my number one. Was that your number one? Right. Yeah, oh, that's oh, my oh, number one. Oh, wow. Okay, that is that is a that is a good choice. And I'm I think never, really, sometimes, always had a similar impact on me i thought that was just incredibly sad and moving and again that's popping up on a lot of people's um list and it's a similar f tell me what you think it's a similar film in some ways um i think the two of them are 
are like bound together in my brain. They're both like 90 minutes. They're both films in the wake of Me Too. They're both films by young women mm. that are very, they're the very clearly feminist films about how women have to deal with what men do to them all the time. And they are both centered around a central scene. In both of them, there is this like 11 minute scene in the middle. That uh, is, that's a two-hander yeah, that yeah. is what the film all comes down to. In, in The Assistant, it's with the HR guy. In Never Early, Sometimes Always, it's with this woman in um, in the facility where the young girl goes. Yeah. I, I think they're incredibly similar, two sides well, of the same I, coin. I think they're very much films for our times. And, and yeah. one of the things that I didn't like about um, another, of your fi- <laughs> another of your films, Bombshell, was just how – well, and look, which is a very different type of film, right? It's it's basically a popcorn film, yeah. Uh, in the way that it deals with similar terrain, really, to to um, the assistant, um, that you know, Bombshell deals in very broad brushstrokes because of the type yeah. of film that it is. Both the assistant and never really, sometimes, always, it deals with this incredibly difficult, very distressing, confronting, important subject matter in the most undidactic, complex, nuanced, subtle way possible. I can't think of two less didactic films than this. It portrays all of the complexity of the issues. And really, clearly, you know, it's fairly clear where the the sympathies of the filmmakers lie, but they're such undidactic, um, meticulously made, subtle pieces of, of filmmaking and how they reveal those issues to the audience. I think very, yeah. very contemporary filmmaking. And Bombshell is not subtle. No. I've got Bombshell at number Fine. 15 and The Assistant at number one. And as everything about The Assistant that you just said, absolutely. And then Bombshell is the opposite. So Bombshell about Roger Ailes, yep. The Assistant about Harvey Weinstein, except Bombshell is the expensive, loud, unsubtle version and The Assistant is the quiet, meditative don't spoon feed yeah. you, you know, subtle version. But you know and what? It's 15 times better. <laughs> I'm probably doing it a disservice and I'm probably doing your inclusion on your list of Bombshell a disservice as well because it's actually really important. You know, we're talking about very fast moving changes in our in our culture that is evolving at a very, very rapid rate. And we really need both types of of cultural vehicles. You need the, the straightforward multiplex treatment of Bombshell as much as the assistant, because you know, a much smaller proportion of the population is going to be exposed to a film like Never Really, Sometimes, Always, or The Assistant, and there are important roles for both of them to play in our cultural lives. Yeah, and you know, I think people are still like, eh, "What did they do?" And Bombshell puts it out there. It's yeah. like this is what Roger Ailes used to do, yes. and it's like, you know, I I want to see. You know, I look forward to the movie that does to Roger Ailes, you know, I want to see the Trump movie, you know, that just like is just takes the villain and just starts kicking them in the face. As as opposed to the two films that we're talking about where none, there is no abuse or mistreatment uh, debatably and never really sometimes always, but there is almost nothing depicted on camera at all. No, but it's, it's, yeah, it's so... Yeah, it's just um, subtle or gives the audience more um, 
room to more room to yeah figure it out for themselves yeah, really yeah no special special films um I, there are a few that I haven't seen on your list I must admit that I that I meant to I haven't seen a white white day which I have been curious curious about for a while you will like it yeah, I can I almost guarantee very, you very very uh, uh, excited. I think it's also mentioning that there are a bunch of really, really celebrated films from last year that you and I both live uh, in uh, in Australia that we haven't had access to yet at all, and it's been impossible to um, to see. But it's a little frustrating. And when I was kind of researching this and looking at you know some of the films that I'd heard good things about from you know respected sources, I couldn't see them. Yes, we have got some films still in the pipeline for us. I know the, everything that happened did cause interesting shifts it with the did. schedules because, you know, there are certain films like I'm not sure that A White White Day has even made it to the United States yet and Corpus Christi, no. which was my number five. Yeah, that yeah. might not be, you know, like we got we get certain um, European films Sometimes a lot earlier than, for example, the United States does. Yeah, and vi- and vice versa. It's a it's mm. a mess of a system, still, isn't it? I, I sometimes, I yeah. The look, it's I, I this is all going to change very quickly. I think, and especially with some of the announcements about release um, strategies th- this year, um, I sort of feel that you know this will be changing very very quickly. As it is, you know, the entire film industry is in flux currently. So. Yeah. I'm going to have to let you go, but one film on your list that I have not heard of. Mm. What is Gandala? Oh, all right. Let's talk about that really, really quickly for one minute. Okay, so kind of referencing off Baccarat that we're talking about earlier and this sort of, you know, this interesting trend, I think, in 2020 around almost sort of wish fulfillment fantasies in the world during a really, really dark, pretty, pretty bad year for that. For the world, um, I so okay. Gandala is an Indonesian comic book superhero film that was released um, about a year ago. Didn't have a wide release. You can watch it on SBS on demand. It's readily available now. Wasn't given a release here. Really celebrated in in Indonesia. To me, um, it had more. I'm not a huge fan of superhero or comic book adaptations traditionally. This to me as that kind of cinema had more personality in the first 30 seconds of its opening sequence than almost anything I saw from the American market this year. I just had a really good time with that. And I think it should be talked about a lot more. And I think it's very much reflective of, you know, a lot of changes in what's happening in the, in the film world. that's becoming more diverse, less centralized, more regionally specific, even in ostensibly really straightforward genre cinema, um, like that. So, if anyone wants to branch out a little bit, uh, Gandala is a really, really rock solid Indonesian comic book superhero film that you should absolutely see. All right, I'll give it a go. I swore off uh, it's comic book superhero movies, but you know, I'll, I'll try that one. <laughs> Jim Flanagan, thank you very much for speaking to me. Let's talk about movies again soon. Cheers, DJ. Bye. <laughs>